What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. I got a little complacent for a while. You know, I was making a salary that I never thought I was going to make. I, I was around people and talent and executives that I'd always dreamed about being around. And, and it was around that time that like, I started to understand the difference between you know, being entrepreneurial and, and doing work and starting something. And then when you're working for a company and these guys were building their business and though I was close to them and though I was one of the first people there, I had to deliver, but I wanted to be one of them. I'm Christine Legorio Chafkin, and you're listening to What I Know from Inc. Magazine. Today's episode Instill Your Will on Your Future. When you think about the founder of a startup, what image comes to mind? Probably some 20-something college dropout with a new piece of tech software. Certainly that's been the case for a handful of people who happen to be the most famous entrepreneurs of the past couple decades. But the reality is, most entrepreneurs don't start companies until their 30s, 40s, or even later in life after years of experience at other companies. Maybe they dabbled in entrepreneurial ventures along the way. Maybe they spent years building a network or starting a family. Maybe for a time they settled into a certain complacency before finally taking the leap. The point here is that there is no one way, no singular path to building a company. All this is true for today's guest, Rich Kleiman. Rich is the co-founder of 35 Ventures, which he started with NBA superstar Kevin Durant. It's part media company, part venture capital firm, and part charity. But before Rich started his company, he spent most of his career making media and managing musicians like Mark Ronson. Representing people, being their advocate, was something Rich found he had a knack for when he was just a kid. I heard a bunch of my friends one day when I was like seven or eight that were complaining about their parents and they wanted to stay up late or their brother got his own private line and he didn't. And I remember saying that I knew how to speak to parents. So if they wanted, they could hire me as their lawyer kid. And then my lawyer kid would be I'd rep kids in advocating to their parents. So like I always had this desire to be regarded for something that I was doing work-wise. I loved watching my dad get dressed in a suit and go to an office. I remember I never really loved school. Unfortunately, I never had the discipline that I've been able to have professionally when I was younger, scholastically. And as much as it didn't deter me in my career, I wish I had that foundation when I was doing all this because I've had to make up for a lot of lost time and learn things that I probably should have learned in school. But is when I was a kid, I just thought about, you know, I didn't want to be famous, but I wanted to be somebody that was regarded. I wanted to be somebody that's, that when people like mentioned my name, they'd say, oh yeah, he, 
he was my lawyer kid or he, he had the, <laughs> he, he's the basketball player. I just wanted some title when I was a kid. Yeah. So it sounds like you were sort of a natural communicator and, and advocate for, for people around you at that time, even when you were little. Oh yeah. I mean, I think even to this day, like I have so much more to go in my career and I still aspire and dream like I was when I was a kid, because I think I'm midway through my journey. That's kind of how I look at my kind of entrepreneur endeavors, which is that like I fought through a lot um, and I had a lot of kind of hurdles and pitfalls along the way, both um, put upon myself by me and circumstance. But I always was able to communicate how I was feeling, what it is that I wanted, sometimes not as loud as I needed to or as direct. But I always said if I can get in a room with somebody and just be able to communicate or tell my story or tell my idea, or if I could get these two people together to see the vision, that I would be able to communicate it. Um, but I also now know, looking back on it, that I may have had the confidence to do it, but I didn't actually have the ability to communicate what it is that I wanted um, when I was younger. So interesting. Yeah. Why do, I want to talk more about that, but um, tell me first a little bit about the hurdles that you mentioned. Um, well, I think that for me, I, I, um, in, in wanting to advocate and communicate for people, I think what came with that was this like feeling that I needed to make sure that everybody was happy all the time. And, you know, I grew up in a family where we all have our issues. We all have our things that come about, whether it's divorce or whether it's somebody that passes or another incident that at the time you feel like is going to end your world. Those things kind of always um, took precedent for me. So even though I was on to something good or I was, um, you know, had the ability to do something, I just didn't dedicate myself. I could talk at the game, but I didn't put the work in because I, I was so consumed with making sure that mom was happy, that dad was happy, that, the, you know, that my standing at school popularity wise was intact or that I was, you know, doing enough on the basketball court. Like I, I just was worrying so much about everything else that was happening that I didn't have enough time to really dedicate myself to what it was that I knew I was really good at. And then like time just flies by and then you're playing catch up. And when you're an entrepreneur, you can't help but take your eyes off the end game. But you know that without the steps and the singles that you have to hit along the way, that you're not going to get to that end game. But earlier in my life, I couldn't see that. I really always felt like, well, this job can't help me. How's this going to get me to where I want to be? Or this person was great, but he said he knew him and he can't really get me to him. And that stuff really always always threw me back. And then I found myself like really in a hole because I did, I just got by in high school. I didn't focus in college and my parents weren't, um, they, they didn't have money to just throw away and, and sending me to school if they knew I wasn't focused. So they asked me to come back to New York. And at that point I was out of school. I didn't really have any connections. I didn't really have any focus on what I wanted to do, but I still had big dreams and aspirations. Um, and even then when I started my quest, like dropping out of college and trying to be entrepreneurial, I didn't have any direction or any real mentors at that time or anyone to put me in the right direction. And, you know, and I 
made mistakes and I got myself in financial holes and I got myself caught up in, in things that were never going to get me focused in the right direction. Um, and I was young. And I think that like being young and immature at times when you're in your early twenties, you're at your peak in some ways, you know, like if you're an athlete, you're considered in your peak or a lot of times some of our favorite artists, they'll say that their first album was their classic album. But I think for like a journeyman entrepreneur like me, because I'm 43 and I feel like I'm really starting to come into my own, is that like that work early on, it's it's not it's not representative of like the best version of you. And, you know, I didn't know what I was doing, but I was trying to stay involved. Yeah, absolutely. There's this sort of myth of entrepreneurship that, you know, it's always someone like quitting their first job and launching this giant thing, right? And and that it just takes off. But no, like most actual entrepreneurship, most successful entrepreneurship takes place when people are in their 40s, maybe even later 50s, uh, after they've had success in the same field that they launched their, their successful venture in, um, which is, it's kind of this myth that gets perpetuated by Silicon Valley right now. Um, but I want to ask you, did, 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 what were those first few you know, jobs in that in their early 20s? And and how did you come to a time that you were actually able to focus on yourself and your own goals rather than, you know, being kind of set back by all of these distractions? Well, I, I think the one thing I always did was I didn't, um, I didn't stay too far away from the world I wanted to be in. I wanted to be in entertainment. I wanted to be in sports. I wanted to be around this kind of fast paced, exciting life that Um, growing up in New York, I was exposed to and that I saw as the people that I wanted to be. You know, when I saw executives like Puff Daddy and Jay-Z and Lior Cohen and Jimmy Iovine and Kevin Lyles and Steve Stout on the covers of New York Magazine and XXL and Billboard and saw, you know, the way in which they lived their life and heard them speak, I felt like these were, that was me. And I wanted to stay around it and be around it. But, you know, you you don't like you said you don't always you can't always assume that uh the journey of an entrepreneur means that you're going to come out of the gate with this technology or this artist that you found or this athlete that you represent or this business plan that you've created and and it's just smooth sailing all the way up and i was able to now at 22 start to put in place connections uh a network experience work ethic um, drive things that I thought I had when I was in high school and trying to be in college and, and, and right out of like dropping out of college, trying different jobs in the restaurant business or trying to, you know, I I was a bookie when I was in college, you know, I had enough of, uh, the wherewithal to like start that business. And, but it was illegal and it was not going to be a means to anything, but I started to now take all of these kind of, um, different experiences of not succeeding in school, getting in trouble with my bookie operation and say, you know what, I got to get in the game now. And I had that mindset. And I went to work at this company, Radical Media. And Radical Media is a commercial production company, TV, film, branded content. And they were in New York City. And a friend of mine, one of my best friends growing up said, I'm going to bring this TV show idea called The Life, which was just behind the scenes of athletes, something that like is every social media channel now, but in the year 2000 was relatively new. And he said, I'm going to bring this to radical media. And the guy who runs radical media, John came in, you know, loves young talent and 
always has great directors and writers and producers around the office bringing projects in. Let's bring this project to life in. And I was fortunate to be a part of that. And I felt like now I had entered the sports world. And though I was working on a sports TV show on ESPN, I was asked to do the music. And if it sounded fun and it sounded like something that was still connected to the world I wanted to be around. And I asked them what the music budget was, and they told me it was like $250,000. And I had never really even imagined that there was money around anything that I was doing that was going to be those kind of dollar amounts. And I said, well, what happens if I don't spend it all? And they started laughing because we were doing 32 episodes, and there was no way to make $250,000 work for 32 episodes. And they said, you could keep it. So at that point, I was set on spending as little as possible so I could keep it. And I built this library of unsigned artists and producers from the city that I got to know, bands that I reached out to, record labels that I reached out to and said, you know, we get your music at the end of this new ESPN show and give you a credit on the screen, but you know, there's really no money. And I just started learning the music business. I built up this like very sought after library of independent artists and producers. I started doing a handful of shows at Radical Media. And even though I wasn't in sports, I started to feel like I was, I could see some light of, you know what, I belong in this world. I like communicating with the people that I'm dealing with every day. And it's okay if I'm a music supervisor for TV and film because it feels, it feels like it's giving me that exhilaration that I want from, from my work. Like I, love, I like to think about my work all day. I want to think about my work all day. And that kind of was the first step in kind of setting me on a path um, that, again, wasn't direct to where I am now, but it was the beginning of the path was when I finally just committed at Radical Media to start working as a music supervisor and, and then started to help John with a handful of different shows at Radical. Yeah, that's fantastic. You can see that sort of spark of passion uh, ignite right there at that moment. And I, I do see the direct path um, to where you are now. But before we I ask more about that, let me just ask you um, about your bookie days. Like you, you mentioned you got in trouble for that. How, I just can't wait to hear that story. Yeah, so... I went to college, 1995, I was a freshman at BU. And I remember the first day school started, I like woke up and I had that feeling that like everyone feels where your eyes are heavier than they're supposed to be. You can't get them up. I didn't really focus that much in school my last few years in high school because my parents had separated and I, you know my mom was going through stuff and kind of took her eyes off the wheel a bit. So I just coasted through. And then when I got to college, I was like, wait, hold up. I don't even have to get up. And I, I remember saying to my roommate, like, what happens if I don't go? And they're like, what do you mean nothing happens? Like, but you got to go. And I was like, oh, no, that was really all I needed to hear. And I just didn't go. Like, I just went to school. It was so irresponsible of me. And I just didn't go. And I'm ashamed, like, thinking back on it now because I have two daughters. And I know how hard I got to work to be able to put them through school. And they go to college in 10 years. And to think that, like, I went to school and my dad busted his ass, put me there. And then I just, like, blew the money. But what I did do was socialize and network and connect with people. And I just, um, I just was like partying and, and enjoying my life. And then I went to watch the Yankees Mariners game five, the 1995 wildcard series. And I remember someone said to me, like, you know, anyone I can put a bet in with. And I didn't, but I called my brother and I called my brother from the payphone. And I knew that he gambled a little bit. And he was like, Oh, well you can put it in like with my friend. And then I never was able to get the bet in with him. I didn't really understand. But I told all these guys that I took their bets. And then after the game, they're like, we'll pay you on Sunday. 
And I was like, oh, shoot, I just won all this money. Like the Yankees lost and the Mariners won. So then on Sunday, people started calling me. I started writing it down and I called my brother that night and I was like, I think I'm up $6,000. I'm like trying to add this up in a composition book and I don't even understand what's happening. Like now everybody's calling me and telling me they want the Broncos minus 14 versus Tampa on Sunday night. And I don't even think I could pay this if I lose everything. And he was like, oh, Rich, what are you doing? And I'm like, so what am I rooting for tonight? He's like, Tampa has to cover plus 14. I'm like, all right, cool. And that night was kind of like my thought process was if Tampa covers, I'll keep doing this. And if not, I'm going to have to like go back home, my tail between my legs and be like, I kind of failed out of school and I don't have enough money to pay this. And I won and I kept booking for two years after that. And I had like maybe 85, 100 different clients, different colleges, people collecting for me. I was so, wow. in, over, so in over my head. Wow. Um, and I imagine that that sort of uh, did that stop at around the same time you you dropped out of college? Well, after my what would have been my sophomore year, I went to BU. That didn't work. And then I stayed in Boston and went to Boston College Night School for like a semester. I don't really I really wasn't doing anything at that point. Um, and I had this bookie operation going still. And it got pretty big. And then after that sophomore year of me trying to be in Boston, and my father was like, you need to get your ass back to New York and like get a job, stop wasting my money. And I told him I wanted to be in the restaurant business, but I, I just kept doing the bookie thing. I came back to New York and in New York, I ran into some trouble. And I, I look at that as like a sign because I didn't get in any real, real trouble, but people in New York that did it a bit better than I did, you know, didn't want this 20 year old kid taking a hundred clients that could have been their clients. So it just meant that my business was over. <laughs> it, was, <laughs> Got it. It, it was time for me to, to be done. And I, it was a little bit of like, it wasn't a fear factor thing, but it was just like, all right, I'm not really built to be doing this right now, long-term. And this is, I'm out of school. I had some friends that were a few years older than me graduating college. And it started to just hit me like, this is insane. And then my friend asked me to go over to Radical Media. And, I, and, and in between that time, like I was a hostess at a restaurant. I was, my brother was big in hospitality. So I tried to bartend. I tried to do a bunch of things. I tried to create my own restaurant. I did this whole business plan and like made these t-shirts for it because I always felt like if I put it down on paper or put it in some kind of binder or PowerPoint or made swag that it was real. You know, when I was 22, 23, that was big. I could make it feel real in a second by just building something that had the name on it. Um, but when my friend asked me to work at Radical and was like, we have a salary of, you know, $500 a week at that point, I think it, it made me realize that I was making no money. You know, like I was trying to do all these things in the restaurant business, but I didn't even have $500 a week to spend my bookie money. I had probably gambled it away at a casino because I knew that that wasn't money I was going to build my life with. So it's almost like I made it and then was kind of like, I let me just spend it and get rid of it and um, give it to people I was friends with and just like start my new chapter. Um, so, yes. So the bookie thing, though, was cool in that um, I really did take it seriously, though. You know, like even though it was illegal, I take the, I took it seriously. And I started like filing away my weeks and keeping the money in the safe. And I just felt like even though it was irresponsible that I had at least shown some commitment to something. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, so fast forward a little bit um, past your radical media um, days and actually building your career, um, finding that real thing. Um, how did you get your start as a music manager at Rock Nation? Um, and I'm curious, what did you excel at there? Well, I had my own company before Rock Nation called Al- called Alito Records, and it was me and Mark Ronson. And Mark Ronson was like the biggest DJ in New York City, he was doing all Biggie Smalls party and the Tommy Hilfiger fashion parties. And Mark believed in me right away and, and just asked me if I would manage him. And I managed him, which led to managing a handful of other DJs. And then it handed, it, it led to me signing a few artists with, with Mark, artists by the name of Rhymefest, artists by the name of Wale, artists by the name of Daniel Merriweather. And we signed these guys to record deals at J Records, at Interscope. Um, and then I was, so I was managing Mark and a bunch of different producers and, um, DJs. And I had a really cool business. Like they, they wrote an article in New York times style section in like 2006 on me and another big DJ manager. And I was in Vegas for different like residencies of my clients. And I was traveling to, I went to Tom Cruise's wedding with Katie Holmes with Mark. I was going to different events four or five nights a week and just building my network and building the people I knew in different business. And, and, you know, my, my ability to talk and not be uncomfortable in, in these environments allowed me to keep building a network. And I, and I, I knew how important that was going to be. I knew that even though I didn't understand yet how, that that's what it was about. Like you needed a network, and especially in the entertainment world. And, you know, when you had someone like Mark at that point who believed in me, it was always such a uh, motivating thing when somebody that had such a gift believed in me to work with them. When I was like, well, you know, I didn't finish school. And when he did, it kind of just gave me that like, oomph, like I can do this. And I started to get my swag a bit. And I had the, I, I had the opportunity to meet Jay-Z and his manager and ended up producing his documentary, Fade to Black, his, his um, the, theatrical release of his like, what was going to be at the time, the final concert that he ever did and it was at madison square garden and i brought that to radical media because i had been given office space for years to build my business so i went back there and did did um fade the black there and then really struck a a relationship with jay-z and even though i had this studio in on mercer street with mark ronson that we built and we had artists in and out of there i had amy winehouse was in there recording jay cole recorded in there lily allen we had an amazing like vibe going in soho when Jay-Z said, like, you know, do you, you know, when I had the opportunity to work at Rock Nation, I, obviously I just jumped and I brought whatever business I was working on into Rock Nation. And, you know, and they allowed me to be uh, uh, one of the first employees. I was like the first or second employee except for the owners and the founders. And, you know, and I was a music manager there. And it wasn't what I had envisioned for my life. Um, but I was next to Jay-Z. And I was only 30, maybe 31 years old, 32 years old. At that point, I met him at when I was like 27, 26, but it was 32. And I was now at Rock Nation. This company was starting and, and I was managing a handful of artists and I really felt good. You know, I was in a good vibe, but I kind of took my foot off the gas again at that point. I had a salary. Um, you know, I never really had a salary of that size. I had some respect from being part of Jay's crew and from being around the industry and building up a network, but I wasn't a real guy or a made man by any means, but I was popular in my business and, you know, allowed me to get into certain rooms, but I didn't like, I wasn't at the top. And, um, I got a little complacent for a while. You know, I was making a salary that 
I never thought I was going to make. I, I was around people and talent and executives that I'd always dreamed about being around. And, you know, and, and, I, and I wanted to now get as far as I could go. But unfortunately, I wasn't putting in the work or the smart work in to do it. And I just wanted to get there. And it was around that time that like, I started to understand the difference between you know, being entrepreneurial and, and doing work and starting something. And then when you're working for a company, and these guys were building their business. And though I was close to them, and though I was one of the first people there, I had to deliver. But I wanted to be one of them. And, you know, I kind of struggled with that because I didn't advocate for myself the way I normally always had. Um, I tried to work more within a box of this company when no one really told me to, but it just, it's just how I kind of reacted. And I think, you know, I was having kids at the time um, and I was confused. I was at that crossroads in my life where I was like, you know, I wanted so much more. I didn't feel like I could get there the way I wanted to be. I felt like I got respect in my industry. I felt like I knew the players, but I also knew I wasn't at the table. I wasn't at the made man table. And that's where I wanted to be. And, you know, instead of working extra hard, I got frustrated. And then I finally had the courage to say to Jay-Z, maybe eight, nine, nine years ago, I was like, I want to work in sports. Like sports makes me so happy. That's what I've always been around. That's what I've always been about. I was an encyclopedia of sports as a kid. And, and everyone knew that about me at the office anyway. All my artists knew that about me. I was managing at that time Solange, Meek Mill, Wale, Mark Ronson. They all knew I was a sports guy first. And when I said that to Jay, he was incredible. He's like, I'm starting an agency and I want you to, you know, hold on one second. And when he said that once before, it was about Rock Nation. So, of course, I held on and him and his partner, Juan Perez, allowed me to be the vice president of Rock Nation Sports. And at that point, it's like, the, the clouds parted and I started to like believe that I was just given the opportunity of a lifetime to be in the sports world. And as soon as I started talking the talk in that world and started to talk to athletes, I could tell this is where I was meant to be and that the language that I had taught myself for my whole life about sports and the business of sports and the, the stats and the different intricacies of the game and what players wanted to do and the culture around it. I knew it. And then on top of it, I've been working in hip hop and music for 15 years. So I understood the lifestyle. So it really just connected for me when I was given that opportunity. That's fantastic. Yeah. I, I think that that feeling of complacency when you're kind of working a job, even if it's a high powered job, um, that kind of doing what you're told and being in that groove and not being able to break out of it is really common. How did you build up the the I don't know, the ability and the um, just the self-assuredness to have that conversation with Jay that got you to the next level? Well, I it's still to this day, I, I, I I'm. I get mad at myself for how I handled certain things because I had the conversation four times when I really should have had it one time. And that was because I never really said how I was feeling. I never was able to communicate exactly what I wanted, but because he's such a good leader, he was able to, to hear it, I think. And, and it wasn't that he was easy on me, but he always ultimately allowed me to keep growing um, and could hear what I was trying to say. But I, I don't think I made it easy because I didn't communicate clearly what it was that I wanted. And I don't know if what I wanted, I was due at that point in my life. You know, like I might've thought I deserved it, but I don't know if I was truthfully due what I, what I was asking for. Um, but what I did realize was that um, 
the feeling that I had when I ran that record label with Mark Ronson and that feeling of it being yours no matter what at the end of the day, win or lose, um, I, I couldn't, nothing I could do about that. I was wired that way. It's how I was from the time I was born. And I think what I ultimately was, was basically saying to, to everybody was that, like, I wanted more. I wanted more power. I wanted more uh, regard. I wanted to know that, like, in my business, that people realized that I was um, a force. And look, some people can tell you that that shouldn't be important, but for me it is. And some people can say, like, why do you care about your title? But I do. Um, and I'm not shy to say it. I don't care about it over anything else. I don't not put the work in. I don't not treat people well. I don't um, not give back. I do all the I do all the things that um, that somebody that you may say is like only worried about themselves doesn't do. But I also want to be regarded. Like you have one time on this earth, and for me, if work is your passion, is your life, is your love. I should go after it like that. The same way athletes go after their goals and musicians go after their goals. I look at my work in the same way. And I want my kids to be proud for the amount of time that I put in and my wife to be proud. So, you know, I, I, those things were important to me. Um, and I just wanted the shot. I wanted to try it. And when I met Kevin Durant, um, you know, him and I instantly gravitated towards one another. I had known him um, for about four or five years before he signed with Rock Nation. Not well, but we knew each other. And, you know, he needed somebody that was going to be his day-to-day, but he also really loved what Rock Nation was about and the culture of Rock Nation, and so did I. Um, you know, I grew up in it. I loved it. And I started working in sports and working in men's basketball, women's basketball, football, baseball. I was really sitting in every meeting and was really got such support from the guys at Rock but Kevin really needed more and wanted more. And we ideated on what we wanted in life. And we talked about what he wanted professionally long-term. And, and um, you know, and ultimately it, it came to a time where we both realized that as much as we were comfortable with where we were at, that what we wanted could only happen if we had the ability to start something that, our, that was ours. And that's always tough, you know, to, to jump out on your own and try that. Um, and it took a long time to get there, understand that that's what we wanted or that's what was supposed to happen. It wasn't as much conscious until it just happened. And then in 2016, we were able to start 35 Ventures. When we come back, I'll ask Rich about 35 Ventures. But first, a quick break. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful, growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. You know, star athletes have always sort of been businesses off the court with endorsements and deals, but it wasn't always that athletes, you would see them starting their own companies. Um, I'd love to hear you talk about that cultural shift and a little bit more about how you um, began the business with Kevin Durant. Well, I think um, Michael Jordan embodied like the successful athlete business off the court 
there was tennis players and golfers that had had tremendous success in terms of the amount of money they made, NASCAR drivers. You knew the money was big. And you knew that, like, Dan Marino had car dealerships and John Elway had car dealerships and people had business. But nobody had built a business with their name in the lights, so-and-so enterprise, and did it while they were playing. Un, until LeBron James did. And what LeBron was able to do was to say like, yeah, you should prepare and build a business off the court and you should um, think about post-career and, and you obviously have to put basketball first while you're playing, but you can build a company in your name, in your DNA while you're playing and be as successful as any other person in sports and in media and business in general. And once he did that, it opened up the opportunity for nobody to think well, this is something I'll do later on, or we don't have to worry about real estate now, or we can't buy into a team. We still got 10 years left to play. You know, all bets were off. And, you know, and that as well as I think hip hop artists that had done similar things and created similar blueprints, Jay-Z, Puff Daddy, again, to like, to always point the two obvious out that there was a, there was a, there was a foundation set. So when Kevin Durant says, you know, I want to start a business, no one's saying, well, that's insane. So now we start 35 ventures, but we don't know what we want to do yet. And what we did realize was we didn't want to just do what we knew was available to us, take as many commercial deals or you know, do another documentary or a big blockbuster film that he could star in um, because that wasn't true to who he was. So I think it was identifying the things we wanted to do and trying to get some small wins along the way until the company came into shape and hire people slowly and not take on too much and master the few things we were working on, like his Nike deal and his on-court contract and his foundation. Then we started investing in technology when we were in Silicon Valley. Then we started collaborating with some of the companies we invested in and we produced content and created a YouTube channel for Kevin. Then we realized that creating content was something we enjoyed and we started producing docs. We sold the scripted series to Apple. And then we created the boardroom, which is our sports business platform. And even with the boardroom, we've added new verticals, video distribution, broadcast distribution, newsletter, original writing, podcast network, live events. We just launched Boardroom University. And, um, and now to this day, we have about 17 employees, 18 employees. We're in New York City. We have, again, still a handful of docs on different big networks. We have a scripted series still in development with Apple. It was shut down from um, COVID. We have the boardroom, which has now really kind of taken a, a life of its own and, and become a sports business platform that is targeted towards fans and has a focus on the lifestyle around sports and sports business. And we have the boardroom.tv, which houses all of our video and our content. And the podcast network launches in a few weeks with my podcast. And then Kevin has one in September. Um, so we're in a really exciting space. And, you know, the, the time period that we've been off during COVID, it was a real telling time for our company. You know, we really came together. We really focused on what we could do to give back to the community, really focused on what our foundation could do to call upon some of our partners, both on the investment side and the brand side to work with us in the community. And we really doubled down on what it was the boardroom was going to do and, and focused on all the different verticals and put more time and effort into it. And I really think our company, uh, we came together, we became closer, we asked each other about each other more. We just understood that, you know, this was our team. This was our escape from how scary the world was. And to have that during this time was incredible. And I think that's what 
ultimately entrepreneurs know is that there's something with that word that is, um, is the fun that they have doing what they're doing, whether it's in failure, whether it's in the journey, successes, pivots, the whole process. You may not want to say it out loud, but it's fun. It's exhilarating. It's a rush. And that's why we all do it. And, you know, I don't want to ever stop because I love every bit of what this is. And, you know, we built a company that can be nimble enough to change direction if there's something that comes to light, like our investment in the Philadelphia Union. Right now we are consulting with the MLS team about marketing and community work. And we weren't planning on that two years ago, but we built this infrastructure to be able to bring partners and projects in that we could collaborate with and we do it at a very methodical pace while never taking our eyes off of the boardroom or any of our big pillar projects kevin's nike business um so yeah we're in a really exciting place now and um and i'm excited for what the future holds and i'm still very much in my mind like on the path on the journey still really just digging in yeah fantastic um so what what's what percentage of the business is the media arm? And I just imagine that that's been so challenging in the time of COVID. I mean, uh, so many people have been have been struggling. Um, has that been your biggest challenge in the last four months? Um, no, fortunately uh-huh. not. Um, you know, in terms of percentages, it would be hard for me to say because in my mind, I spent 100% of my day focused on being Kevin's manager first and foremost. But then I also, but then I also spent 100% of my day running our business. So Somehow I'm figuring it all out, but you know, our documentaries came out a few of them during the beginning of quarantine, which, you know, I'd hate to call anything a blessing during this time, but obviously we had a lot of eyeballs on it and the boardroom. Yeah, people needed that. (laughs) They did. They did. And then the boardroom, you know, we, you know, we just kept working. We just kept writing and kept recording and kept interviewing and kept engaging brands and sponsors and buying media and just kept growing. And, um, you know, it didn't affect us. I think we've built our brand in these last four or five months and become more familiar brand still have a long way to go, but you know, we weren't affected as much on that front. I think some of our brands that were ready to spend some new levels of money with the boardroom ecosystem slowed down a bit, but that was nothing obviously that we really needed to, um, worry about because it just paled in comparison to what it could have been. And, um, you know, we've been lucky to be able to keep going. Yeah. Um, I'm curious. I mean, I, I know that as Kevin's manager, you're probably involved in almost every decision that he makes, but are there any decisions that you don't get involved with? Um, well, it's not that I don't get involved, but some decisions I just completely defer. Um, some things he'll come to me and his mind's made up and it's my job to execute it. You know, I'm not somebody that doesn't say how I feel, but Kevin and I also speak every day for the last nine years for as short as 30 seconds. Or we have real long calls and talking about life, you know, in business and out of business. Um, but, you know, for the most part, I think when Kevin comes to me for a question or uh, advice and a decision or what I want to do or, you know, should we do this? Um, you know, I'm going to give my opinion. We don't always agree. And then there's some things where, when he tells me it's time to go and wants to do something, I'm going to do it. Um, and we don't even discuss it. Yeah. Um, you so, you seem like a guy who's willing to speak his mind. Um, I'm curious, as at the time we're recording this, obviously the NBA is set to restart its season after this four months hiatus. Um, 
what what challenges has that presented and what do you make of of how the NBA is doing in response to COVID-19? Um, well, I don't know the tangible challenges because I'm just not there, but I obviously could imagine that the challenge isn't just trying to manage this and um, keep people's uh, spirits and actual medical state as safe as possible is tough. All of it's tough. The coordination's tough. Um, the rules, the uh, the different scenarios that must be happening day to day. You know, imagine every person there has their own unique experience or someone they need to see or reason they may want to leave, and it's tough. Um, from the looks, you're talking it, about the bubble. Yeah, yeah. From the looks of it, it looks like it's been a tremendous success so far. Knock on wood, and it looks like the tests have all come back that no one's been tested positive, and the competition looks great. I think the court looks great. I think that. Um, the way they're doing it, and I'm not shocked because of Adam's leadership, is um, is really becoming a model now for some sports leagues. I'm so curious, um, you know, about the the what your thoughts on the future of sports are and entertainment. I mean, it's interesting. The media you do is is stuff that's you know widely distributed and doesn't require um, an, a live audience. But in the media world, so much of what we do in magazines and so much of what other media brands do is monetizing in person events um, and using those to support other media. Of course, the sports world is is built in a similar way. Um, can you? See a future in which professional sports and entertainment works without without that in-person audience and without live events? Um, or will we just get back to normal? Where are you, What are you banking on right now? Well, I think we'll eventually get back to normal or a new normal. And I think that none of this is forever, but there'll be remnants of this time in our life forever because um, there'll be changes. But I think that uh, it'll be slow. I think there'll be some innovative ways that we consume live sports at home. I think that um, I think that there'll be some reluctance from a good part of society to be in an arena or a stadium longer than when the rules say. Um, but I think that the experience of being in a stadium and arena is impossible to go away. I mean, these are things that have gone on long before there were sports leagues in ancient times when they competed and um, people will always love to be part of, of that action and, and right at the forefront of it, but it's going to take a little bit of time. Um, but I do think that the way we consume games and the technology that may have been a bit more slow walked into, into the mass market may come quicker. And I think that could be cool because I think that it allows a new audience to start to watch sports at home or engage with their spouse or watch with their kids because of new ways that you can view it, new broadcasts, new technologies. Um, and then sports gambling, as that becomes more legal in different states, will just be such a big part of, um, of sports moving forward as well. Oh, interesting. Are you seeing more people engaged in that already? Well, I think people have always been engaged. I think yeah. there's more open conversation. There's more platforms. There's more ability to gamble on more things. Um, there's more fantasy sport options. There's just more. Um, and things that are targeted towards a more diverse group of men and women that can participate. So I think those things will start to come to light. But I don't think that sports and that feeling that we all kind of crave from it will ever go away. 
You know, also relevant over these past few months is this this intense kind of moment of social activism we've been seeing. And I think that so much of it is tied in with with the worlds that you inhabit in in media, sports uh, and formerly music. Um, what is the role? What role can athletes play and should they play in in activism and in sort of correcting some of the the things that have, um, you know, the ills of society right now? And um, and and has Kevin been involved in that stuff or how has he, I guess? Well, athletes have always, in my opinion, been some of the more outspoken and some of the more impactful individuals we have in our country. And the ability to bring attention to an issue or a problem in our society, they've been the first people to raise their hand and and stand on the front lines of it. So I think that we can count on that group of people and NBA players, especially. Kevin is no different. He's always... um, very proactive with his community, his foundation. He speaks when it's appropriate. He doesn't need to speak the loudest to make the most impact. He has a different strategy, but he's, you know, always going to be on those lines and be a leader in his community and continue to give back and impact in communities like PG County, where he grew up. Um, And to him, that's his way of continuing to inspire and give back. Um, You know, and I think that everybody in America needs to be doing their part, whether it's educating their children and the people closest to them, whether it's helping in their own community, helping on a national level, or just knowing that you're on the side of right. Because one thing that's happened now is people, you know, people can't really hide from the fact that this problem that's been existing in our culture forever, forever, 400 years, forever, that if you don't do something about it now, or at least make sure that you're focused and centered on being a part of the right side of history, the right side of the issues in our country, then, you know, you, you're going to be exposed. So, you know, now that, um, athletes are the, the, the right people and are the, are the, are the people that we've always looked to, to kind of put that word out into, into social media, into, uh, into their post-game media when they know it's important. And now we realize it's important, period. So I think you're going to see athletes that continue to do this and not take their foot off the gas. And I think that's imperative. You know, this wasn't a moment in time. This is the way it's got to be now. Yeah, 100%. Um, and Kevin puts his money where his mouth is, right? I mean, like building and restoring basketball courts for in underserved areas. Um, is that something that's been able to go on uh, post-COVID or during COVID? Yes. Um, yeah. We, uh, we have two courts or three courts in Brooklyn that we've finished developing. We're building one in Harlem right now. It'll be up to about 25 courts we have built. We have the Durant Center in Prince George's County, which houses college track program, as well as a handful of other not-for-profits. And we have our emergency relief fund, which is um, triggered every time there's an issue like what's going on in the world now, or if there's a natural disaster of some sort. Um, And all of our programming and our activations in Prince George's County take place at this building that Kevin bought and built out called the Durant Center. So um, yeah, we've been very active. We did a partnership with Degree where we gave away a million dollars to 10 youth organizations, very much like the one Kevin grew up in, Sea Pleasant, uh, that were hit badly by COVID. And um, it's important to keep those kids active and safe and with a voice. So, um, yeah, we're always busy and we it was no different during this time. If anything, it was became number one, two and three focus for us. 
Fantastic. One other thing I wanted to ask you about, what advice would you have for for aspiring entrepreneurs about kind of channeling your drive and getting past those early hurdles um, to to look to your future and focus on it? Uh, Visualize it and talk about it. Um, I'm really, I'm a real firm believer, and I don't say this in the past tense because I feel like any entrepreneur I'm talking to, I'm in it with them right now still. But I think that like visualizing it, talking about it, writing down, telling your your family, telling your wife, telling your friends, explaining what it is that you want to do over and over again, not in an annoying way, but in a way where you've made it crystal clear what it is that you want, what you stand for. And, and every day you go out in this world, you can't take a day off thinking about it and knowing where that goal is. Now, if you want to run Disney and you end up doing ad sales as your first job at with the New York Islanders or with um, the lacrosse league, you can't now say, well, this isn't what I visualize because what you visualize is when you get there, but how you get there is going to take all these different misdirections. But if you stay focused and you continue to visualize what it is that you want and where you want to be, those different quote unquote mishaps or indirections in the world really are the path. That's the journey. That's the path. But you just have to make sure that you don't lose sight of it. So the job may be off course for a second, but if you don't lose sight of it, then it's still in your radar and you're still going to get there. Thank you, Rich, so much for joining us today. This has been really enlightening. Thank you, guys. Um, I'm a fan of the show and yours, and I appreciate you having me on. After speaking with Rich... I realized what I found remarkable about what he had said was that you can both find your passion and at once become complacent. For people with the entrepreneurial spirit, just people brimming with ideas, just having a seat at the table can become not quite enough. He was honest about the eras of his life, sometimes driftless, sometimes hungry for more power. And he came to the conclusion that the things you create or accomplish in life just don't seem linear until you see them in the rearview mirror. So whatever path you're on, embrace it while at once keeping sight of your goals. If they seem too far out of reach, get others involved. Don't just build a network that can help you. Tell your friends, your colleagues, and get others to hold you accountable for the things you set out to do. That's something we can all learn from. What I Know is a production of Inc. Magazine. Since we're just starting out, we'd love it if you could please subscribe to What I Know wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love it if you could recommend us to a friend who's interested in startups or entrepreneurship or help recommend us to a lot more people by leaving your rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Your thoughts really do help other people who'd love this podcast find us. You can also drop us a note anytime at whatiknowatinc.com. Let us know how you broke out of your funk. Also, who would you like to hear me interview next? You can also let me know your thoughts on Twitter, at Ligorio. Our producer, who is still trying to get Jay-Z to return his phone calls, is Joshua Christensen. I'm Christine Ligorio-Chafkin. Thank you for listening to What I Know.